Good morning, Riff. How are you? So we are about two-thirds of the way through our series going through uh, the Apostles' Creed. And so if you uh, have not been here before, we're about to do something that we don't do every week all the time, but we are doing every week of the series, and that is that we're going to stand together and we are going to recite the Apostles' Creed. Now, some of you uh, may have this memorized as a kid. I don't have it memorized. My goal has been during the series just to see if I accidentally memorize it as we go. So I don't know if any of you guys are getting close to that, but if you would stand with me, we are going to read uh, together the Apostles' Creed. Uh, It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat now. You may have noticed, um, if you have been here through this series, that a disproportionate amount of the Apostles' Creed has to do specifically with Jesus, which obviously makes sense because Christianity is all about uh, the person and work of Jesus, right? But this week, we are hitting the last chunk of the Apostles' Creed that specifically deals with Jesus by name. Obviously, we're going to talk about Jesus every week because we do that every week. Um, But this is the last chunk of the Apostles' Creed um, that specifically talks about Jesus uh, by name. And today, we're covering this kind of weird line where it says, he Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, you may remember, if you were here with us last week, um, that when at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he and his apostles were standing on a, a mountain, and he ascended into heaven. He just went whoop, right up into heaven, and this is this moment where they were all standing there. You may remember, just mouth agape, staring into the sky, and a couple of angels appeared and said to them, why are you staring at the sky? Jesus, who went that way, was will one day come back that way, is essentially what he said in my, my paraphrase. Well, that's what we're going to cover today, Jesus returning. And we're going to start by looking at the last two verses of the entire Bible that were written by one of the guys that was staring up at the sky that day. This is what he wrote. He said, he who testifies about these things said, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. So these are the words of the Apostle Paul uh, relating the message that he had gotten from Jesus. And so it says, he who testifies of these things, it's not talking about John, it's talking about Jesus. He is saying, Jesus says, yes, I am coming soon. And this is where the Bible wraps up. The whole Bible wraps up with this hope, with this anticipation that Jesus is returning. I love that John says, amen. Amen is that word we throw at the end of uh, a prayer, but often we don't think about what it means. Amen means so be it. 
It means, so when you say that at the end of your prayer, you know, you're praying all this stuff and then you get to the end, you're like, may all the stuff I just prayed for be so. So be it. You could say yes. You could say yup. You could say that stuff, right? That's kind of amen. He's like, and so when Jesus says, I am returning, he's like, amen. So be it. I I want you to return to Jesus. And so on Christmas, we celebrated the fact that Jesus came physically, bodily, in a manger is what we celebrate on Christmas. And now what we're talking about today is when he will physically, bodily return. But the next time he comes, he's not going to look like a eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus, Right? He's going to look a little different. This is one of the biblical pictures of Jesus returning here. It's in Revelation 19. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, prepared, are wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will trample the winepress of the fierce anchor of God the Almighty, and he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, that is a slightly different picture of Jesus than the one that we, we, we think about at Christmas, right? You probably don't have this Jesus in the manger, right? Um, in your little nativity scene uh, that you home. Now, here's the thing. This is one of the pictures that we have in Scripture of Jesus when he comes back to rule as king. But here's the deal that we have to just say up front. There are a lot of godly, faithful followers of Jesus who disagree on the particulars. The particulars on how this will happen and when this will happen. What is the timing? And and even the particulars on, is this the first time um, that we see Jesus? There's a lot of differences, but this one point is something that Orthodox believers of Jesus believe, that Jesus is returning that he is coming back, that he is physically, bodily coming back. He's not coming back metaphorically. He's not coming back in your heart. Jesus is one day going to physically, bodily return. And I don't know about you, but I kind of like this vision of Jesus returning as uh, like all tatted up. Right? Like, like some people uh, like to picture Jesus, you know, with a tuxedo t-shirt that says, I came here to party. See, two Talladega Nights references in one sermon. You're welcome. But I like tatted Jesus. What does it say? It says he's got his name written on him. And what does it say about it? He's the only one who can read it. That is a boss move. Jesus has a tattoo with his own name on it. Sometimes you have, you know, mom, right? On your, on your, or maybe your spouse's name. He has his own name. He can do that because he's Jesus. But the description, the word, you can't even read it. And then it says he's got another one. It says on his robe and on his thighs, his title, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So Jesus returns. At one point, we're going to see him with a couple tattoos, one that has his name, one that has his title, Right? And so what do we do with this? This is just like weird, interesting, prophetic future imagery. What do we do with this? Well, let's go back to when Jesus was sitting with his closest friends, the night he was betrayed, when he tells them he's about to go away. 
Let's go back there for a second. Jesus says to the guys, hey, it's been a great three years of ministry. I'm going to go pretty soon. And their response was to freak out. This is what happens in John, John 13. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you will follow later. This is like when you're talking to a two-year-old. You're like, I'm going into the kitchen and you can't come. You're like, give me a second. And their response is the same that Jesus, <laughs> they're like, Lord, uh, why can't I follow you? Right? Um, I, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have uh, denied me three times. In other words, before tomorrow, not only are you not going to follow me, you're going to deny me three times by tomorrow. And so that's got to be like a little bit of a wound for Peter, right? He was just saying, Jesus, I love you. I'm going to follow you anywhere. I'm going to go anywhere you want me to go. Jesus like, no, you're not. (laughs) You're going to deny me today. And then after dropping that bomb on the table, this is what Jesus says. Don't let your heart be troubled. Well, Peter's heart is probably very troubled, right? So don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I I will come again to take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live too. Now listen to what Jesus is saying. He's like, guys, I'm going to go away for a little while, all right? And eventually, you're going to come to where I am. Now, I'm going to be working on a place for you, and so you got to just give me some time to work on the place, right? You're not going to see me while I'm in this place, but this means that when I go, it is not going to be the end. So just don't freak out, right? He's like, don't, don't freak out. What are the, don't let your heart be troubled. He's just saying, don't panic. Don't freak out. Believe God, believe me, believe what I say, that, that I, am, I am coming back for you. And I've played this out in my head. I wonder how many times they repeated back to their hearts, don't be troubled, don't freak out, because <laughs> this is right before Jesus' betrayal. He's like, listen, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Did they say to their hearts, don't freak out when Jesus was arrested? What about when he died? What about when he was buried? What about in that intervening three days, that gap? Did they say to their heart, don't freak out? What about when Jesus rose from the dead, spent 40 days with them, and then stood on the mountain with them and said, okay, guys, here's the mission. Here's what I want you to do. Don't freak out. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me right? Go make disciples. And then he ascended into heaven. I wonder if they said to themselves, don't freak out, right? I wonder if all of his disciples, except John, when they were brutally executed for following Jesus, if they told their hearts, don't freak out. I wonder if John wrote the book of Revelation when he was dipped in a vat of oil, boiling oil, did he say to his heart, don't freak out? We don't know what was going on in their minds. But I think the answer is yes. I think they repeated back to themselves what Jesus said to them. Don't be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Don't freak out. Why? Because their entire world changed. And they lived completely different from that moment on. They had hope 
in the midst of their suffering, hope and anticipation that just like Jesus was right about his death, just like Jesus was right about his resurrection, just like Jesus was right about his ascension, they had hope and anticipation that he was right when he said that he was returning and that he was returning, like he said to John, soon. Hold on to that. Because that gets really hard for us, doesn't it? When it's been 2,000 years. But listen, this is what happened with these guys. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul, when he's writing his letter, one of the apostles, says, I want you to stay awake because Jesus is coming back. The author of Hebrews says, each day we see that the day Jesus is coming back is drawing nearer. James says, I want you to patiently wait. Peter says, I want you to prayerfully wait. John says, I want you to confidently wait. Every single one of these guys was waiting. And they want us to wait. Patiently, prayerfully, confidently waiting for Jesus to return. But it has been, let's acknowledge it, 2,000 years. These guys fully anticipated that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. And so their entire worldview changed because they thought he could return at any moment. So we got to go tell everybody in the world about Jesus because, because someday he's coming back and, and he's going to come back with this imagery that he gave John in, in Revelation. Like, we got to tell everybody. So let's see if we can capture some of that hope and see what this means to us 2,000 years later. Look at Titus. This is what Paul writes to Titus. Titus 2, verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see what he's saying? Paul calls Jesus' returning our blessed, our blessed hope. This is what he's saying. He's like, Jesus is coming back. This is what we're actively waiting for. This is where our hope is. And it's not hope like, oh, I hope Jesus comes back, right? It is an active hoping and believing that's going to happen. It's not fingers crossed. <laughs> I remember uh, there was this guy I talked to once. He was a, a old pastor who back in the former Soviet Union would often sneak into the Soviet Union to preach the gospel in underground churches. And I remember him saying that when he would sneak in, their church services were on average three hours long. You're welcome. Um, that the, 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 the church services included three sermons. You're welcome. And that the message of the majority of the sermons was always Jesus returning. That's what they focused on. In fact, he said most of the songs that they sang were about Jesus returning. Why? Because they were suffering. Because they were in hiding. Because they were in persecution. It's the same reason that the early church in the first century had that hope and anticipation. It's why they talked about Jesus returning so much. Because that's what our true hope is. It's not in this world. It's in something else. And listen how Paul talks about this act of waiting. 
That's what he says. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Remember, the grace of God is the thing that saves you. You don't save yourself. You don't bring yourself to salvation. No one else does it either. The grace of God through Jesus saves you. And he says, the grace of God that saves you, the same grace of God instructs you to deny godliness and worldly lust. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, godlessness is just anything that's unlike God, right? So it's any time we fail to be perfect, right? So that's, that's what godlessness is. And then he says worldly lusts. And we hear the word lust, our mind immediately goes to one place, right? It goes to, to sexual stuff. But lust is a huge, huge idea. You can have lust for power. You can have lust for money. You can have lust for a giant Instagram following, right? Lust and that pursuit of something that you think is going to give you ultimate satisfaction. So what he says is, anytime you're unlike God, that's godlessness. Or anytime you're pursuing something in this life uh, to satisfy you, and so you're pursuing it lustfully, what you do as a follower of Jesus, the same grace of God that saves you also instructs you to deny those things. And another word for deny, you can translate that renounce. And I kind of like renounce because it's like, um, it's like citizenship, it's like you're saying, my old citizenship had the rights and privileges of doing whatever I wanted, live a godless life, and to pursue whatever I wanted for me, kind of the, the lust of, of this world, right? And then I renounce that. I turn over that citizenship with those rights and those, th those privileges, and I take a new one. A new one over here. And it's not about me. And it's not about living the way I, I want to live, but it, how to live. He says, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way now, in this present age. Do you see what he's saying? The same grace of God that saves you is the same grace of God that gives you the, the power to deny this stuff, gives you the same power to live a different life, to live sensibly and righteous and, to, and, and, and godly. The same Holy Spirit that lives in your life um, is the grace of God that tells you you can say no to sin and, and yes to Jesus. And that's a radical truth. Because so many of us, when we face temptation of all kinds of uh, different things, uh, just even think about the, the, the temptation to those lusts, the lust for power, the lust for money, the lust for, for fame, right? We, we sometimes think no one else has faced this the way I face this. That's what Paul says. Paul in 1 Corinthians, he says this. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he says, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you'll be able to bear it. Now think that through for a second. There's two truths in there and it's often misquoted. First truth is, any temptation you face is common to all humanity. Now, you may you just say, that's not true. I call bull on that, right? But maybe it's just the specifics. You know, you're drilling down into, oh, the little minutia. But in the broad bucket temptation that you're facing, everyone faces those things. See, this is what happens so often. We're alone. And I think Satan, when he's tempting us, he says, you know what? No one else is dealing with this, so you just got to deal with this yourself. But there's no temptation you've ever faced or will ever face that is not common to humanity. And the second thing he says is what? God is faithful. In other words, the temptation doesn't have the power. God does. And the promise in this passage is not that it's not going to be hard. It's not going to be that you're in your own strength bill and gut it out. What is the promise of this passage? The promise of this passage is that there will always be a couple paths. 
right? You will always have another path. God is going to leave you an opportunity to say yes to him and to say no to sin. And so what happens is so often when we go to come to temptation, it's because we feel like we're alone. We feel like we're alone. And when we're alone, we, the power of sin and temptation is so much stronger on our life. But the Bible says, no, that's not true. You're not alone. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit in your life as well. And you have other people. You have the church, the church family around you. And Jesus offers you another path. And the grace of God that saved you is also instructing you, is also in training you on how to pick that path. But let's be super honest. Why would we? Think about these great truths. If you're a follower of Jesus, nothing can rip you out of God's hand. (laughs) So why not do whatever you want, right? And then on top of that, temptation is kind of fun. Can we be honest? And can we be really honest? Sin is even funner, right? It's like the funnest sometimes. Think about, think about these, the, the examples I gave earlier. Let's say you have power. You want to give that power up? And especially if you didn't have power before, you were powerless, and now you have power? Wow. What about money? Same thing. What about if you didn't have money, but now you have money? What about influence? That Instagram following, Right? The, the influence, the, the, all those things. Would you be willing to let those things go? See, what happens is those things are a lot of fun, right? We're like, we like having power. We like having money. We like having prestige and, and all those things. None of the, and here's the thing. None of those three things are intrinsically bad. Scripture teaches us that power can be a good thing. God has a lot of power, and he uses it well. We see in Scripture that there's both righteous and unrighteous wealthy people and righteous and unrighteous poor people. It has nothing to do with the amount of money you have, but about your righteousness. When it comes to platform, look at the Apostle Paul and the platform he had when he used it for the gospel. If he had an Instagram account, right? How would he be leveraging that? And so the idea is not that we have these things, but how we use these things. And what does he say? To use those things in a new way. To use our power and our platform and our money and our internet fame and all that for the good of others and to tell people about Jesus, to say, my hope is not in this world. My hope is not in that power. It's not in that money. It's not in that platform or even the lack of those things. And then what people will say is, why are you living like that? And that should not surprise us. This is what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3 verse 4. He says, people are going to say to you, where is Jesus' coming that he promised? You say you have hope that one day Jesus is returning to set all this straight and that's what you're living for? Where's he been? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation, right? They're like, where's Jesus? Peter was writing this just a couple decades after Jesus ascended into heaven. And if people were saying that to him then, how much more are they saying now? This is, this is a crock. Christianity is lying to you. Why? That's what people say. Like Jesus said he's coming back 2,000 years ago. You actually believe that crap? And then people died. And then generations of people died. Thousands of years, centuries have gone by. Jesus is a liar, people will say. You can't trust Jesus. So what do we do with that? This is what Peter says. They deliberately overlook this 
By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Um, Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment um, uh, and destruction of the ungodly. In other words, this is what he's saying. Everything in the world happens by the word of God, by his promises, right? He created the world with his word. By his word, the world was flooded in Noah's day. And by his word, the world, as we know it, will one day perish in fire. That day is the day of judgment he's talking about. Do you remember who leads that day? It's a guy on a horse, (laughs) with a couple tattoos and a bunch of crowns on his head and eyes like flaming fire and what's sticking out of his mouth. It says a sword, which is the word of God. Oh, wow. Sticking out of his mouth is his word. (laughs) It's the word. The symbolism of that is Jesus and his word. So why hasn't Jesus come back to do all that stuff yet? Verse 8. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. In other words, God is outside of time. So if time is like a line, you know, and creation is over here, and judgment day is over here, and there's this line running from here to here, we kind of travel along that line, and we're like, this seems to be a long time. But God created that time, so he stands outside of that time, and he just looks at the line. The whole thing. With him, one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like one day. He's like, it's all the same. He's looking at all of it. That means that he is not slow in keeping his promises. He's just looking at the time differently than you are. Verse 9, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. For years, I read that verse wrong. I would read that verse and say, it says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some define slowness to be, but he is being patient, not wanting any to perish. What did I, what did I think he meant? What I thought he meant is that he was being patient for, for people who weren't followers of Jesus to become followers of Jesus. Now he's being patient because he wanted everybody to repent. And, and that's, that's kind of true, but he's, that's not what the passage says. See, Peter here is writing to Christians. So when he says you, who's he talking to? Christians. So when he says God is being patient, who's God being patient with? Christians. What is he saying? God doesn't want anyone to perish. He's waiting for Christians to tell people who don't know about Jesus, about Jesus. It's you he's being patient with. It's me he's being patient with. He's waiting for us to tell others about him because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to have an opportunity to come to him. And the day will come where everyone who will ever believe will believe. And after everyone who will believe, will believe, then, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. That's scary. That's intense stuff, right? But notice what comes with the intensity. Clarity. Everything on earth will be disclosed. Everything on earth will be known. That includes your sin and my sin. It'll all be shouted from the rooftops. Everything else will melt away and we'll just know what is left. Look at verse 11. So since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. 
Well, of course. As you wait for the day of the Lord and hasten its coming, because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. And, and what he's saying is this ought to change the way you live, but not maybe in the way that you think. The fact that one day Jesus will come and everything will melt away and all that will be left will be the, 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 our works should cause us to want to live in, in holy conduct and godliness, but not because of the fear of that fire. It's because everything will be laid bare and there will be no more debates about what is true and what is not. There will be no more debates about who can be saved or who will be saved. There'll be no more debates because every one of our works will be laid bare and we'll see that none of us did it. None of us made it. None of us lived the kind of life that we ought to live. It's all gonna be laid bare. So if all of this is true, if Jesus is God, if he is the centerpiece of history, if Jesus is the creator who created everything with his words, and, and we rejected him, and he was rejected, and yet he lived a sinless life anyway, and then he died on the cross, and he took all the sins of the world, and he was buried, and then he rose again, and he actually ascended into heaven to the right hand of God the Father, and if anyone places their faith in him, receives his righteousness, and can actually say yes to Jesus and, and no to sin, then what that means is we no longer have any reason to be afraid. When we read these scary parts of scripture, we have no reason to fear. We can actually say with John, come Lord Jesus, amen, so be it. Look at verse 13. He says, but based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We're excited that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And what will dwell there? Righteousness. Well, wait a minute. I thought we had all of our sins and we couldn't do it. No, here's the beauty of the gospel. It's what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. And that is when Jesus went to the cross for the sins of the world, he took your sin onto him and he gave you his righteousness. And so when this says in the new heavens and the new earth, this is where righteousness dwells. What he's saying is that's where you're going to get to dwell because you have Jesus' righteousness that you no longer have to worry about the sin part. That's already been dealt with. And when the whole, all, everything's melted away and we can see with clarity, we'll see that the only one who is righteous is the one on the horse. <laughs> he's the only one who is righteous. And he's given us his righteousness so that now we can dwell where he is. And I don't, I don't know about you. I don't know if this is just me getting older. I'm either sinning more or I'm more aware of my sins and I really hope it's the second thing. <laughs> because the older I get, the more I see the depth of my sin and my need for a savior. And, and, I, and I know that God is training me. And I know he's giving me the ability to resist and fight with sin more and more. It just seems like it's harder the older I get. <laughs> and I think that's how it is, this side of eternity. But in the new heavens and the new earth, it's not gonna be a worry anymore. I'll only live out the righteousness that Jesus has given me, and you too. So what that means is, here on earth, you are going to sin. You're going to sin, and you're going to goof up, and there's going to be times where you're supposed to say yes to Jesus, but you're going to say no to Jesus, and that's going to happen today. But you can be confident that the same grace of God that saved you has promised he's going to keep training you 
to renounce sin and say yes to Jesus. That's his work in your life. So here's that scary sentence in the Apostles' Creed again. Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. The simplest picture I have of this is back in that last book of the Bible, Revelation, that John wrote. This is what he said. He said, Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Jumped off of his horse, got on the throne. Earth and heaven fled from his presence. Imagine that. Just picture it. Jesus jumps out of the throne and heaven and earth just can't even stand it. They just run away. (laughs) And no place was found for them. They couldn't hide. I also saw, he says, whom? The dead. The great and the small. The powerful and the not powerful, the rich and the not rich, the people with influence, the people without influence, all of them, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. See the word books? It's not book. There's multiple books described here. The first contains everything you've ever done. Imagine that book. And that book will be read. But then there's another book. It's called the book of life. And Jesus tells us in Luke, and Paul tells us in Philippians, and John tells us later in this chapter that what's contained in the book of life is names. The names of everyone Jesus has saved. And if your name is written in the book of life, it does not matter what is written in the other books. You have already been given the righteousness of Jesus. Your name is already written in the book of life. In fact, when Jesus' followers went out and did a bunch of crazy stuff in Luke, they come back and they're like, Jesus, you wouldn't believe all the stuff we did. We did so many great things. We like performed miracles and we preached the gospel. We did all this great stuff. What are they saying? They said, we stopped doing this stuff over here. We started doing all this stuff over here. Isn't that amazing? And Jesus' response to them was, don't rejoice that you did that stuff. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. That's what we celebrate. That's what we have our hope in. That one day Jesus, when he returns, he's gonna open that book of life and he's gonna read our names. And then we will dwell with him forever because we've not been judged by our works, but by his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus on a horse. We, we thank you that that's the power of the God that we serve. He jumps up onto the throne, heaven and earth run away. The elements melt away. And we just thank you for that clarity. We thank you for the clarity that we can't save ourselves, that there's nothing that we can do. There's nothing we have done. There's nothing we are doing. There's nothing we will do that could save us. And that is good news. Because we have a king. We have a guy on a horse with tattoos down his side who calls us friend, who calls us brother and sister. We thank you that for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, our names are written in the book of life. And so we hope. 
we live with anticipation. We say, come Lord Jesus, and we ask you to wait a little longer so we can tell a few more of the people that we love about Jesus. We pray all this in his precious and saving and powerful name. Our King of kings, our Lord of lords, amen.